BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 2024 Santa Fe, available early 2024. Pushkin. A while back, David Byrne published a list of protest songs on his website. Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit was on there. So was Bob Marley's Get Up, Stand Up. And also more unusual choices, like Merle Haggard's Okie from Muskogee, which, if you've ever heard it, is a song not protesting for change, but against change. It's the song protesting protest songs, needless to say. We loved all this a broken record. And we love David Byrne going all the way back to his days with the Talking Heads and his brilliant book, How Music Works, and the million other genius things he's done over the years. So Rick Rubin and I asked David to sit with us in New York. Rick Skyped in from Hawaii, and the three of us had a chat about David's list, the earliest protest songs he remembers, and what it takes to write a song of protest. Here we are, Rick Rubin, me, in conversation with David Byrne. I'm Malcolm Gladwell. This is Broken Record. I have a question, a a very naive question. Have you guys ever worked together? No. I don't think, as far as I know, we've never even met. No, we've never. Oh, really? We we have never met. Oh, wow. I would have thought... I've been a fan from a distance. And likewise, but we've never met. So this is historic. It's kind of historic. I mean, in well, the smallest, in the small yeah, age. Yeah, yeah. In, the, in the smallest possible <laughs> small way. Small age historic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not Neil Armstrong on the moon, but, you know, it's like. So does it, that mean it qualifies for your other podcast? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to revisit this incident yes. at some point. Say what really happened. <laughs> well, welcome, David. Thank, thank you for coming on. Thank you. Broken Record. You had said that you wanted to talk about protest songs. And you've made this list, which many of us have been scrutinizing. <laughs> and can you start by defining what you mean by a protest song? Uh, yes, okay. This is kind of where I started. Not too many years ago, there was a spate of articles in the press saying, everybody's kind of up in arms about the 
political situation, social situation, polarization, et cetera, et cetera. Where are all the protest songs? What happened? Was everybody just sitting back and going, well, we're just going to wait till this blows over? And I did a little bit of looking and I thought, they haven't gone anywhere. They're still here. People are writing them. And what's more, some of them are big pop hits by big pop artists. So not only have they not gone away, they've become part of the mainstream. Uh, and I thought, well, I'll make a little uh, list to, to prove my point. What do you mean by they've become part of the mainstream? You mean they're now made in such a way that they blend in with other music? Absolutely. If you didn't listen to the words, you might think it was a love song or a big pop hit. The sound of some of the songs, not all, the sound of some of the recent songs that I put on here, sounds just like any top 20, top 10 hit that you might hear. And then you listen closer to the lyrics and you realize, oh, this is about something else. Do you think that's a positive development or does it? Yes, I think it's very positive. In a certain sense, it shows that these ideas are being discussed and put out and for kind of a general audience, a general public. It's not necessarily a public that is a little rebellious demographic or mm-hmm. college students who have time to protest. It's kind of the general adolescent and young pop music listeners. And I thought, well, no, how about that? There's even some that are, I would say, to my ears, they sound like straight up Nashville country, not the country that I know you and I might listen to, which is older, but kind of contemporary country music, which sounds more like rock music these days. And I thought, you might not have expected to hear those sentiments being expressed coming out of Nashville. What's a good example of what you're talking about in that, from your list? Hands Dirty by a group called Delta Ray. Uh-huh. It's kind of a bluesy country song, and it's about it's sung by a woman, and it's about equal opportunity and, and, and empowerment. And what do you mean I, I'm not suited for the job? I'm totally suited for this job. I can do this job. Or what are you saying? You're not going to listen to what I have to say. You're not, why is that? You're not looking at That's what a lot of the lyrics are. There's a lot of anger in it, but it's really catchy. <laughs> now, the obvious response to that is that when a protest song is, is constructed like a, an everyday pop song, you're going to miss it. Like, I think of how hard it is for, I think musicians, and I, I would love Rick to respond to this, but I, I think musicians as a rule overestimate the extent to which people understand the subtleties in their lyrics. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think that one that I mentioned, mm-hmm. you, I think it's pretty hard to miss that one if you listen to it at all. It's, pre- it's pretty direct. But I absolutely agree. I mean, plenty of politicians have uh, used, uh, born in the USA, yeah. not knowing what it's about, that it's meant ironically in a certain way. So the rah-rah, I was born in the USA, is kind of meant in an ironic way, which adds another layer of confusion to the understanding of it, I think. Yeah. Irony is a really hard thing to do in a pop song like that. Shouldn't an ironic protest song (laughs) be ruled out of the list of protest songs? Can we say that if you're resorting to irony, you're not actually protesting? Well, it could be. It could be. But I would just say it's really hard to pull it off so that it actually, people, as you said, people really have to understand the, the lyrics. Yeah. They really have to be listening to the lyrics, say, of that Springsteen song. It's also a subversive trick in that it it allows the song 
to go places that the more direct protest song couldn't go. But the very fact, I was thinking about this, you know, the I noticed on your list is Randy Newman's Rednecks, which is a, it's funny because I'm in my revisionist history, I have a whole thing on that song. This, <laughs> that this, one song. Yes, which I'm sort of obsessed with. But at one point I interviewed Randy Newman about it and he said, now there is a song that is ironic and just the way you're talking about Rick, but he stopped playing it live because he'd play it in the South and the rednecks would all start shouting for him to play rednecks, which is a song which is critical of rednecks, which, and that criticism, ironic, that ironic criticism, ironically, escaped the redneck. At a certain point, you have to understand, it's like, isn't it futile to do a protest song that the subjects of the protest consider to be a celebration? I think it happens pretty often, actually. Yeah. There, there's an example I could think of in from punk rock. Black Flag had a song called TV Party, which was a, a sarcastic song about people who just sit around and watch TV all day <laughs> instead of going out and changing the world like Black Flag were doing. Uh-huh. Yet it became an... Eventually, even when Black Flag would play it, the people in the audience would cheer not at the sarcasm of it, but the idea of we just want to have a TV party. Like it... it <laughs> It completely reversed. <laughs> it, was, it was amazing to watch. Was it amazing to watch or depressing to watch? I found it entertaining. I want to ask you guys about some other songs that I put in there. I put in some songs that were, well, some will be familiar, like Okie from Muskogee. Mm-hmm. Put in some others, like the, I think there's one called Rednecks, White Socks, and Blue Ribbon Beer, which is again kind of a there that one is celebrating for a redneck thing so and Oki from Muskoki is doing the same thing in another way and I thought these are songs that are protesting from the other side mm-hmm. not the side of Bob Dylan or all that and they're saying wait a minute our way of life has a value our way of life we have things that we believe in we don't want it totally turned upside down. I was reminded when I was looking at those songs, there's a famous essay by a black historian called The Whole Country is Southern, or The Whole U.S., The Whole Country is Now Southern, which is, or something like that, which is a famous statement made by George Wallace. George Wallace, in the early 70s, when he runs for president, he starts to get people from around the country sending him letters saying that they agree with him. And what he meant by that was, the whole U.S. is Southern now is that the argument of the Southerner was that we ought to think about racial politics in personal terms and not structural terms. And that once America bought that line, that this was all just about people getting along, not about reforming institutions and laws, they would win. The white Southern protest song is very often um, that kind of song. It's a song that personalizes structural injustice. And I consider those kind of personal protest songs to be illegitimate protest songs. I think I have a Marxist, I have a Marxist position that a protest song to be a protest song has to protest unjust institutions. And if all you're doing is saying people are not nice to each other, like I don't think Sunday Bloody Sunday is a protest song. I know you like you too. That's a that's a why can't we all get along song. I don't know. It's not a protest song. Okay, okay. It's a point. That's a good point. Okay, so I'll pick another country one, which was coming from another point of view, an older country song called The Pill. You would say this is not protesting an institution. 
Well, the pill is an institutional. That's an institutional force. Yeah, it's a. Yeah. It, so she's saying a structural change. She's saying you can't be telling me what to do anymore because now I've got the pill. Yeah, I wonder. Do we think that the purpose of a protest song is to change somebody's mind who has a different opinion, or is the purpose of a protest song to rally the like-minded people around something they already believe? I think the second one is what, whether it's that's what the intention is or not, I think that's what it ends up doing. It ends up creating a community by saying, people go, yes, I believe that. And look, there's somebody else that believes that, and they wrote a song about it. So there's two of us now. Yeah. So it, it helps the tribe feel more like a tribe. Yeah, that's what I think. Which mm-hmm. I, that makes that that sounds right. In in a roundabout way, that causes larger change once the tribe recognizes itself. Then that then things can happen after that. Yeah. You know, there's a there's a phenomenon in social science where the biggest obstacle to people to social change is that the people who are might be motivated to change radically underestimate the kinds of the number of people who feel like they do so for example if you ask college students how many college students binge drink they're in many cases historically their estimates were way higher than the actual number they thought it was the norm to binge drink and felt weird and left out if they didn't and then they were informed actually the overwhelming majority of college students do not binge drink. And kids are like, oh, I, I'm part of the majority. So a protest song can have that function. This is what you're saying, I guess, is that it can alert people to a position and let them know they're not alone in... I was thinking of, um, do you remember a song, uh, and I've forgotten who sang it, a British New Wave song from the 80s called Sing If You're Glad To Be Gay? Oh, yeah. Who did that song? Oh, what's his name? Um... Robertson, Tom Robertson. Tom Robertson. Do you remember this song, Rick? I don't. Sing if you're glad to be gay. Sing if you're happy that way. I've now rendered it completely anodyne. <laughs> and the point of that song was that for it made it okay. I, I mean, my interpretation of it was that it, at a time when it was difficult for people to celebrate their sexuality, it he sort of legitimized it. He was talking about his homosexuality, his sexuality, not in a defensive way or an angry way, but in a celebratory way. That was why that song was such a radical scene. I don't know if I'm getting it wrong. Do you think no, no, no. I agree. I totally agree. Was, and I think it was also had to do with the way he looked and, and, and things. He didn't fit any of the stereoty- gay stereotypes. Yeah. He looked like just another punk rocker or new wave rocker or whatever. But there, that had that function that you're talking about. Of It was a rallying point for people who might otherwise be isolated or disaffected from their from their cause. But I, I, I'm still not satisfied that we have an answer as to why, or this question of who is the audience for a protest song. Does this suggest that it, when a protest song gets an audience, it's in spite of its protest, not, a, not because of it? <laughs> like, are we, just, are we just drawn to what's going on because it's a beautiful song sung by a you know, an extraordinary singer. I think if it's not a beautiful song, regardless of the content, we probably wouldn't be drawn to it. It has to function successfully as a song first before the message, the, the message is additional, but the message is, is rarely going to carry the weight of the work of the song. 
But when you're producing a song, Rick, if someone came to you with a, I mean, it could well happen. Someone you're working with comes to you has written a, an angry song about Donald Trump or some, you know, would the the lyrical content and the message change the way you would produce that song, the way you would help them craft its final form? It's very unlikely. It's yeah. very unlikely that the content would would dictate. Do you ever have an experience, David, of working on a song where you've musically changed it based on the lyric? I had a song that it's not very well known, but it it was one of those ironic ones where I I wrote what I to me seemed like a Republican anthem. And I thought I was being very ironic and I tried it as like a fascist rally style and worked with the guys from Devo. And then I tried it in another style where it was more like this beautiful brass uh-huh. arrangement. Both of them completely ironic and both of them, I think, in, in their own way failed in that way. Wait, what was the song? It's called Empire. <laughs> but Wait, what album is it on? Oh, it was Grown Backwards is the name of the album. Yeah. But it's fun, but I think in that sense, it, I tried to adjust the yeah. music to fit what I was saying, and I think it just made it more ironic than ever. We can't prevail on you to sing like two, two lines of it. Come on, give us a little flavor of it. In national elections, with, with something raised on high, with stirring emotions, as I fill the sky. In democratic fever for national defense. There you go. I like those two last two lines I like. (laughs) We'll be back with more on protest music with our guest David Byrne after this break. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. 
Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. We're back with more David Byrne. I think I have an example of a protest song that sounds like a protest song. Ready? Okay. Peter Gabriel Biko. Uh-huh. It's a lament. The chorus is a searing personal lament. There's nothing pretty. It is It is a beautiful song. There, there is no way to listen to that song without understanding that it's a protest song. Yes. But, that, but the very fact that I can think of only one is, I think, maybe proof of this point. Can you, can you think of any others that are... Maybe Mississippi Goddamn. Oh. Mm-hmm. That, that, that really reeks of protest. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, but she, uh, she announces the name of the song before she sings it, and you just go, okay, here we go. <laughs> yeah. You know what you're in for. We were talking before, and someone, I've forgotten who, my apologies, said there's a, a Charlie Mingus song about Governor Farbus of Arkansas. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which he just, does he, what does he do? He just sort of, I haven't heard it. Fables of Falbus or something. Fables of Falbus, that's right, yeah. That would also fit into the category of one where there's no ambiguity. You know this video that is going around done by this Swede Masons of um, Once in a Lifetime putting Donald Trump? Have you heard? <laughs> oh, yes, I have seen <laughs> do that. Do you know this, Rick? No. <laughs> so someone, will you tell, David, tell us what? I, I'm so, you might have sent it to me. Someone sent it to me. It's a... Uh, They've done that CG trick where they can put Donald Trump's face on top of mine and yeah. kind of, I think, just run the video all the way through, but instead, but it's always Donald Trump instead of me. And I thought, this is actually pretty funny. <laughs> people were saying, you got to tell him to take this down. you got to tell him to take this down. No, but I it's said, more than that. No. It's that they, they go through Donald Trump's speeches and take out all the words where- He even, appears to be saying it. Yeah, he, yeah, so they have once in a, you know, once in a lifetime. They have Donald Trump. They found a once, they found an in, they found an ah, and they found a lifetime. So he's actually singing <laughs> the song. <laughs> it's like, it's kind of fantastic. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's very clever. As he bounces up and down in that, yeah, I don't know what, what particular protest song category that belongs to, but we're deep into CGI irony at this point. I have a question. I think to myself now, if I were to write a song that, dealt with an issue or of some sort like that, that I would put it in someone's mouth, as some of these songwriters and singers do. I would try and tell a story through a character and have them personify an injustice or whatever it had happened, rather than me yelling and saying, this is unjust, this is unfair, this is wrong, whatever like that. You just tell the story and then let the audience make the conclusion which again could be, so what is that about? But you would hope that it would be more moving because it, it has a, a narrative to it. And some mm -hmm. of these people do that. Billy, uh, Steve Earle's Billy Austin. Yes, that, that was really great at that. But this is an interesting question, which is that there is so little third-person narration in popular music, which is weird only when you consider that in fiction, that's basically all there is, with some exceptions, the overwhelming which, you would think there would be a thousand songs of, filled with characters saying things, but there's very few. Randy Newman does it. 
in country they do it from time to time, but there's very little of this this way of storytelling, which I've never understood. Why does it is it hard? It's just different. I think most musicians think of it as expressing their true selves. And I think the jump to that using a fictional character to present your true self is a step that a lot of musicians don't mm-hmm. take. Bruce Springsteen probably comes to mind as someone who really does it well. He often portrays a character in his songs. But it's true that I think for a lot of songwriters and singers, it's deemed to be inauthentic if you're not singing about yourself. Yeah. I mean, but that's ridiculous. Well, okay. But no, no, this is an interesting question. I understand on an emotional level why they would, but that's not what fiction writers think. Yes, and it gets even more complicated because a lot of pop songs are written in the first person where it's, I did this and I did that. And they're not, the, the person that's singing it didn't write it. It's written by a professional writer or yeah. somebody, you have no idea who they are. And you go, and so there's a feeling that, that if the singer does it really well, it feels like it's their story that they're telling, but it's not. Is this why covers are as appealing as they are? Because you have a prior relationship with the song that they're singing, often with the person who wrote the song singing at first, it's clear then that the person covering the song is in character. Is that a fair statement as to why we like covers as much as we do? That's a good idea. I'll, I'm, I'll not sure. that. I'm not sure because it, when you hear someone sing a song that you're familiar with, you think of the song as the content, but you don't necessarily think of it as the person spilling their guts. If it's If it's an already familiar song, it's more like, this is the way I would do this song if I wrote it. It's more like a demonstration of of a musical angle <laughs> or a direction mm-hmm. than necessarily making it sound like the person who wrote it. There are there are occasions where cover songs hit hit the mark so well. I, uh, the first one that comes to mind is "Nothing Compares to You," the Sinead version. I can't imagine. You know, I know Prince wrote the song, but when I think of that song, I think of it as Sinead's song. A lot of people would say that about the song Hurt, the Johnny Cash version. Mm-hmm. They would just say he, he he just took it and now he owns that song. So you would think, yeah, when it's really well done, the fact that it's from somebody else just dissolves and you're identifying with something that somebody else wrote. You know what? This reminds me of when Ice-T got in so much trouble for Cop Killer. His response was, that was a character. <laughs> yes. And I think uh-huh. in one in one interview, he mentioned Psycho Killer, your song, and said the inspiration for Cop Killer was Psycho Killer. It was just my, it was mm-hmm. a version. And what was fascinating to me was no one could accept the fact that he was writing in character. Whereas with you, it was clear that you weren't writing as a Psycho Killer. You were talking about a Psycho Killer, you know. But with him, I wonder whether that was one of the forms in which that one of the things we deny the group that we are excluding is we deny them the full reign of their imagination. And as we say, you can only be literal in your music, whereas for people who are on our side of the fence, we will allow them much greater license. Also, if you listen to so much early hip-hop, it's packed with fantasy imagery. Very little, little of it is face value of people speaking about their lives. It's usually more 
paints a picture of this opulent lifestyle that more often than not, those artists Mm -hmm. were not living, but desired. And it wasn't probably until maybe NWA was the first time that the lyrics were like gangsters talking about gang-related things. That was the first time we heard that. Prior to that, it was more um, an arm's-length relationship between the content and the artist. Is there a reason why the, the genre would have started that way and only moved to a more direct or authentic form a little later? I think maybe in the early days, I don't know that the people who were making it felt comfortable celebrating that lifestyle. That's a real radical shift. It's one thing for to be a live in a rough lifestyle and then to sing beautiful songs. There's a long history of people doing that, going back to the Frank Sinatras of the world. But to sing about what's really going on is a, it's a kind of a modern idea. Yeah. We'll be back with more David Byrne after the break. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. We're back with more David Byrne. Can you guys remember, each remember your, the first protest song you remember hearing in your life? I'm old enough that it was probably in the 60s, mid to late 60s. What comes to mind? I think I might have thought of songs like We Shall Overcome or Mm -hmm. Blowing in the Wind or things like that. Blowing in the Wind is mine, for sure. 
Did you know as a child when you first heard those songs that they were necessarily protest songs? Not exactly. I think We Shall Overcome, I mean, the lyric says it, but again, kind of like Biko, it sounds like a lament. Musically, it sounds, yeah. it sounds, it almost sounds very sad. Mm-hmm. And, and musically, it seems to be saying, is this ever going to happen? Did you understand it when you heard it the first time? I think uh, intuitively, that conflict, I was probably trying to figure it out. Musically, in the sound of it, it sounds like it's saying, it's been so long, it's so long, it's so long, is anything ever going to change? And yet the lyric sounds hopeful. So there's this kind of a tension or contradiction between the music and the lyric. Mm-hmm. And I think I could sense that, but I probably couldn't figure out, well, what do I, what, the, what is that? What's about, what's with that? Yeah. That was probably some of the, the strength of the song was that, that uh-huh. juxtaposition. It made it more interesting. I, I can remember as a kid when I heard like Blown in the Wind, I didn't think of it as a protest song, but I did feel like it had a different kind of power than other music that I couldn't necessarily put my finger on. It did something, made me feel something different. And it also had a, like in the case of Blown in the Wind, there's a timelessness about it where I couldn't imagine the world existing where that song wasn't already in it. You know, I can't imagine there was a time before Blown in the Wind. It just sounds so, so naturally in the world. <laughs> I don't know how to explain it very well, but, but it just sounds like that's something that's always been there. It's part of the natural world. I was interested in what came after. What songs like that had meaning for you, David, after Dylan? Is there a kind of second wave? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think after I heard Bob Dylan and stuff like that in the 60s and late 60s and all the other things, then you, I started to go backwards. I started to see where did this come from? You know, we're hearing, you're hearing Woody Guthrie songs and... Lead Belly and there's blues songs that are talking about conditions and social justice and things like that. And you find there's a whole backwards tree of roots and all that of stuff that fed into that. And you realize, oh, it didn't start out of nowhere. There was a whole backstory here. When were you, David, when were you doing that kind of, at what point in your life were you doing that kind of historical did you go backwards and start listening? Well, it's been right after that. It's been kind of late 60s, early 70s yeah. and whatever. And then I remember hearing like Sound of Philadelphia songs, like the OJs that were singing about issues and social situations, but they were doing it in a pop song that was that you could dance to it, that had the sense of joy in the music, and which was a big difference from folk singers in the 60s and the protest music in the 60s, then you realized, oh, it, it can feel good mm-hmm. and still be saying something. You, can, you don't have to feel bad. You can feel good when you say something. That insight seems like it left a mark on your own songwriting. Oh, yeah, yeah. I realized, oh, groove can make you want to move your body. And that is sometimes how you get the, the words and the other stuff in. And like humor, if you can, you can get ideas across through humor that people wouldn't accept if you just kind of said it to them. 
Are you writing music at starting to write music at the same period or No, not yet. I tried and it was it was terrible. When is when it was very imitative. It was What were you imitating? I tried to imitate Bob Dylan and stuff like that and it was just horrible. But you know, you know, very kind of Yeah. copycat kind of stuff. How long does it take for your own sound to emerge? At least six years later or something like that. It's been a while. Is that unusual for... So somebody to try try a style and fail? I think that's pretty usual. I think artists normally start by copying the artists they love, and through that practice, they can find their own voice. It takes time. Some it happens much quicker, and sometimes it takes much longer. But I think that's a, a regular trajectory. You don't ever revisit some of that early stuff, do you? Does it horrify you? That stuff, yeah, that would be yeah, incredibly embarrassing. There's other early stuff that I think holds up okay. That where I, I see like, like uh, lyrics that I've scribbled down, and I go, it's, "It's a different guy than who I am now." But I, there's something there. But yes, yeah, some of the really early attempts are just terrible. Yeah, it, unrelated to this, but it's just something I'm thinking about when we talk about the artists who are primarily protest writers, it seems like the people who listen to them would be that the tribe around them, whereas the more unusual case, and maybe the one that has the bigger impact, would be like Marvin Gaye. Because Marvin Gaye went from singing non-political songs to all of a sudden having what's going on, this very political, so, so a very popular artist changes what he's singing about to all of a sudden get very political. And it seems more revolutionary than the guy who's always been singing the political songs. Well, the songs are incredibly catchy and they're, the production is beautiful and you're totally sucked in just by the music alone. And then there's all the, yeah, then there's all the lyrics. It's one of the things that's interesting, like when we think back about The Clash, we really think of them as a political group. Yet if you listen to their songs, maybe, maybe a third of them are political, maybe less. You know, so many of the songs are, you know, my baby drove up in a brand new Cadillac. You know, there, there's so many traditional songs mixed in. And I think that that may have played into why The Clash were as, as popular and transcendent as they were, even though we think of them as a political band, it was more that it was a, a balanced, it, it, they didn't put the politics before the music. It was just one of their moves to the basket, let's say. And their image was so, I just remember the London Calling album cover and just, it, it, was, it took you aback. Like they just presented as being so radical and... Mm-hmm. Uh, disruptive. They didn't even, you know, the, the, it's funny you mentioned that about Rick, because I, I, I would have, in my memory there, everything was political, but you're right. It, you'll be surprised if you listen back with that focus, how many songs were, were not political. Yeah. I always wanted Rudy Giuliani to have his, his campaign song be Rudy Can't Fail. That's great. How did he not do that? That's great. What, how, was there no one in Rudy Giuliani's inner circle who was like, <laughs> here's your song? <laughs> I mean, I mean, if Reagan can do whoever it was, whatever Republican person did, used born in the USA, then Rudy Giuliani can do Rudy Can't Fail, which is even. 
That may be that may be asking too much of the inner circle of Rudy Giuliani. Did did either of you guys get to see Neil Young's? Uh, I think it's called Greendale. It's either Greendale or Greenville. It, it, he made an album, and then when he performed live, he performed the album in its entirety with a stage play acting out the songs. Either, did either. I never saw that. I think there's a is there a movie? Of I it think as they well, filmed or it as well, video or something. But it was it was yeah. an amazing experience to see. I remember watching it, and by the end of it, I was crying, and I felt like everybody in that theater was going to leave wanting to take action and do something good. And it was so uplifting and so beautiful. And uh, I can't remember another piece of music having that such a strong connection where you, you felt like we, we need to get involved. We need to take, we need to participate. It's really beautiful. What was it? What were the songs about? Variations of saving the planet. Oh, I see. Am I right that it take it took place in one town, a small town, and you got to know different people in the town? Yes, and the characters were like uh, Sun. I can't remember her name. That one character's name was Sun, and one character's name was something green, meaning the for the land. The relationship between these different characters were metaphors for nature, and it was really it could sound very corny until you saw it. And just got completely wrapped up in the story. It was amazing. Did you see it, David? No, I haven't. Because it, it's what you were talking about, this idea of putting the words into another character. Yeah, yeah. I did one on my last tour that I heard. It was a Janelle Monet song called Hell You Tell Em About. And basically, I heard it like a year or a couple of years ago. It never ended up on any of her records, as far as I know. And it just, it basically just lists the names of young people, mainly male and female, who've been killed by police. Trayvon Martin, and the song is just like, say their name, say their name. So it's an act of remembrance and an act of like, don't forget this, don't forget this. So it never analyzes things. It doesn't scream out for justice, but it just it just is a list of these names and saying, don't forget these names. Don't forget these people. These are people. And by putting out the names, it becomes incredibly moving because it kind of puts a face on the issue of what they're trying to say. I found it incredibly moving. So I, I started doing it as part of my own show. Of course, I, had, I asked. I thought, I, <laughs> I wrote to her and said, what do you, what do you think of this kind of kind of older white guy singing this song. <laughs> she was very happy about it. Does it work? Done by you? It works. People find it very moving, but we put it right at the end of the show and it kind of puts a little bit of a damper on things. I mean, it does kind of kill, it's a little bit of a vibe killer, even though it's very rhythmic. What do you say in introduction to it? I say that it's her song. I'd say it's a, it's a song about change. It's a song about it's asking people to rethink things. And it's, it has that effect on me. I have to question things for myself. And I leave it at that. People, were, they loved it, but it's not like we're all happy and everybody's everything's fine kind of ending. It's kind of like, no, we got work to do. It's that kind of ending. 
Many thanks to David Byrne for coming on Broken Record. To see his full list of protest songs, visit davidbyrne.com radio. We'll also put it up on brokenrecord.com, along with a playlist of all the songs featured in this episode and others. Broken Record is produced by Justin Richman and Jason Gambrell, with help from Mia Lobel, Jacob Smith, Julia Barton, Jacob Weisberg, and of course, Rick Rubin and Bruce Hadlam. Our Broken Record theme music is by the great Kenny Beats. This show is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. I'm Malcolm Gladwell. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A dot com to start a new musical journey today.